Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST site, my own website, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you get you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. For the most exclusive access to leading economists and business leaders from around the world, subscribe to Talking Business from my website, leongetler.com. I'm Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 44 in our series for 2022, and today's date is Friday, December the 2nd. First, I'll be talking to the APAC General Manager of WeWork, Boulder Toll, and I'll be talking to economist Nicholas Green about citizens' juries. But now let's talk to Boulder Toll. Well, Boulder, tell us about the work of WeWork in, in the APAC region. In general, yeah. Well, in uh, in, in the region, uh, WeWork uh, is it's, it's quite a culturally diverse region, actually. Uh, so I'm the general manager for Australia and Southeast Asia. Uh, my role is to look after the business uh, at a regional scale and support my teams uh, to grow our presence in the region, which at the moment uh, is a culturally diverse region region with uh, over 50 locations across 10 cities and seven countries. That's a lot. It is a lot, but it's uh, exciting because I think part you know, of our value proposition at WeWork is obviously that we have a whole network of office locations that our members uh, can enjoy. So at WeWork, like our members are companies of all skills and industries, all of them having to navigate an entire new world uh, of work. And I think now more than ever, I believe that the office needs to serve a very clear purpose and be a place where employees want to be and to be part of that new movement and influence a better day at work uh, is very exciting to myself. So what has, a work, what has WeWork actually done post-pandemic to reshape the office? Look, I th- there is there there is a lot uh, that has changed over the course of the pandemic. I think uh, in 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 the beginning, like I think the pandemic has accelerated a new way of work that would otherwise have taken decades for us to get to. It's genuinely reset the philosophy of how we work. So strengthening the user demand for optionality when it comes to office space has significantly increased. So even just in terms of market demands. Some analysts say at the moment that the time, the total addressable market for Flex has grown 5x compared to pre-pandemic. But I think as an organization, there's been a fundamental shift on the purpose of the office. And I think uh, operators are getting a lot more sophisticated, challenging the traditional real estate industry. And that is through the, the shifting purpose of the office, why people are coming into our CBDs again. But I think one thing is certain, and that is that flexibility 
has absolutely been the key driver for organizations to consider Flex in general. What is specifically the work of WeWork? What's your role? So we're a flexible operator, so provides office space and flexibility at scale. So within WeWork organizations, they come in and they can take advantage of um, the flexibility that we offer in, compared to the traditional real estate. So I think where, where it gets really powerful in a post-pandemic world is the desire for flexibility on two different elements. And I'll, I'll, I'll explain it in two different I think, first of all, there's from an employee engagement perspective, companies that let their employees work when and where they need will have an advantage going forward in the war for talent. So the ability to support um, how and where they work will become a competitive advantage for companies as they recruit talents. But there's obviously on the flip side, there's an operational perspective. And the idea of long-term and inflexible you know, real estate commitments, it's losing its appeal for many business leaders. And if anything, the pandemic reinforced that real estate flexibility is a strategic business tool in supporting organization scalability. Now, I think the coming uh, uh, 12 months is going to be an interesting test uh, for the flex industry at large. We do see that when there's increased economic uncertainty that we experience in the world right now, there's a greater demand for organizations to have flexibility in their real estate portfolio. But uh, at the same time, this actually means companies will now have to share their office space with others. Would that be correct? Yeah, so there for WeWork, there's a different element. So obviously, I think there's been a genuine evolution, you know, of what flex actually means. I think I've been in the industry for about 10 years, and the evolution of spaces has been incredible to be part of. So 10 years ago, when we referred to co-working, it was mainly open plan, really tailored to startups, small businesses. And for them, flexibility was a great, uh, a great tool. But pre-pandemic, we already saw a shift in preferences for larger organizations. So space has really started to challenge the traditional real estate solutions. And But I think one thing has remained the same, and that is the value of connectivity, community, um, and shared learnings in the space. So for WeWork, where we service you know, companies large and small, what we see is that they have their private space, but they have the opportunity to do their, their, their deep focused work. But the moment they step out of their private office, they're in an area that is really designed to um, collaborate um, and inspire interactions between members. So you've got best of both worlds where you have a very amenity rich space, yet still the privacy of your own office, if that's the right setup for your organization. I've actually been in WeWork place spaces and what struck me for myself as a visitor but also I suspect for the companies themselves it's like checking into a hotel <laughs> I love that you say that because uh, normally internally I always refer to our business as a hospitality business and we have the luxury that our guests stay with us a minimum for a month um, but more often for a year or more and that allows us to really get to know our members um, and tailor our programming and events and you know the part of the underlying culture uh, to the members in each location. Um, but I'm glad that you felt the level of service and hospitality walking into our spaces. Indeed. But what, one of the other issues too, isn't it, that you would actually have to develop a community of users 
wouldn't you? Correct. So how do you do that? So we have dedicated community teams in each and every one of our locations. And they are the heart and soul of our organization. They are, you know, client facing. They make sure that, you know, they welcome with warmth and really apply the hospitality principles, you know, into our day-to-day operations. But they are there as well to make sure all the operations, the technology uh, runs uh, smoothly. So if the, the fundamentals of office space, like the right temperature, fresh air, you know, the IT infrastructure, that's obviously an absolute must. But it is the service and the community teams that get to know our members in depth and have ongoing conversations on, you know, their preferences and how they'd like to operate in the space. That's really where the value add comes and what we refer to as the WeWork magic. So where do you see the future of WeWork now in this uncertain economic space? Yeah, well, like I said, I think there, there, there is, when there's increased uncertainty, the need for flexibility even increased. Um, so we'll, we'll, we'll continue to, to grow on that. I think the industry at large has incredible opportunity for growth. The flex industry still represents almost like half a percent of the total square meters in the, the commercial market, both in Australia and internationally. And some say that could represent 20% of total traditional space over the next uh, five to 10 years. So that's uh, that's there. But I think there, there's a number of elements that we have created during the pandemic to uh, through leveraging technology tools um, that have been really interesting to reply to market demand. Um, so technology does play a big role in the usability of our spaces. So during the pandemic, we created two products, which is all access, which is a very low cost monthly membership that is not tied to a private office, but allows you to access all of our over 700 locations around the world with one single key card. So it's the ultimate flexibility. But we created uh, a product uh, that is on demand, uh, which is a pay-as-you-go service. So those are technology tools that allow you know non-members to access all the amenities and spaces. Um, so that's one. I think the other evolution that we see is the preferences on how our members like to occupy. If we think about the purpose of the office, our members are coming in with a greater intention than what they used to do pre-pandemic. I think it has been very clear that if I want to do deep focus desk work, I can do that anywhere. I can do that from my home, I can do that from a third space, or I can do that in the office. However, the, the preferences for employees to come in is really for that greater connectivity. So what we see is organizations that occupy you know, entire floors within WeWork, they change the one-to-one desk ratio uh, into more of collaborative areas. So we introduce Collaboration Hub, which is a plug and play that our members can swap desks for more collaborative areas. And the last part, what we see, which is a fascinating trend uh, there, is that more organizations come to us and say, hey, I've got 150 employees. I actually only need 50 desks because of the hybrid work solutions that they've implemented. But there's obviously the management from a user experience point of view is where the challenge is right now. So WeWork is introducing a workplace management uh, software that we launched earlier this year uh, and will become available around the world by the end of 2022. And that allows organizations to have both data 
insights and the technology tools to plan who is coming into the office on a daily basis on a full self-serve. So it is the technology together with increased demand that is um, a very you know, up, um, uh, positive outlook um, for where the flex industry is going at large. Well, Boulder, that's fascinating stuff and I'm sure everyone will be fascinated and thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Leon. And now let's talk to economist Nicholas Grian. Nicholas, you've argued that we overdo competition. How do we do that and what's the problem? So think about the election of a school captain. There are quite a few schools, I think, now that, and for quite a long time, have been a bit anxious about making that a big competition and turning it into an election with campaigning and so on. I know the school my daughter went to, they had elections, but they didn't like campaigning. And that piqued my interest because the American presidency, when the American presidency got going, when the Constitution was set up in the United States in 1789, it was regarded as shameful to campaign. So the now now this this came from the idea that our leader should not be somebody who's desperate to get the power to be the top dog, but it should be someone who we trust and ideally someone who takes the job on reluctantly, as in fact George Washington did. And it took until Thomas Jefferson for campaigning to start, but Thomas Jefferson was a duplicitous fellow and John Adams, the second president, was livid with Thomas Jefferson because Thomas Jefferson pretended that he wasn't campaigning, but in fact, he was campaigning. So the culture, the whole idea, that's in fact where the Electoral College comes from as well. They didn't want uh, they didn't want this high office to be seen as just uh, something of power that power hungry people would aspire to. Now, quite generally in our society, and it's such a it's so ingrained, that we don't really notice it because we think, well, if we're going to appoint, if we want to promote someone, we'll hold a competition. And there are lots of other ways that we can choose leaders and choose representatives. And given how much trouble we're having with our competitive system, namely having elections for politicians, as you know, I've been exploring those things quite a lot, uh, alternatives to that. So what are the alternatives to competition? So the, 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 the one that a lot of people focus on, and I've focused on a lot, is the idea, I call it representation by sampling, because the, the, we think of representative democracy, we think of that as synonymous with elections. But there is another kind of representative democracy, and it happens in juries. So a jury is representative of the public, but it's representative of the public in a very different way. The people on the jury haven't won a competition to represent the public. They represent the public because they've simply been sampled by from the public. So what does that do? Well, firstly, it produces a very different demographic in the jury. There are far more people who are quite young and quite old. There are far more people who are poorer, who are less well-educated. In other words, in many ways, it's more democratic. And the other thing about a jury is that a jury is not preoccupied with power and preoccupied with a competition 
between one side and another. They're a group of people rather more like you would hope our politicians would be, but they're not, which is to say, well, we have a problem. We've got a problem with our relationship with China. Let's put our heads together and see if we can work out the best way through. That's the that's the lot that's the psychology of a jury. It's not the psychology of a parliament. The psychology of a parliament is endless competition, competition to get there and competition against your opponents once you are there. You've talked about citizens' juries as a non-competitive way to run our politics, and you've spoken about decompetitive merit selections. Can you tell us what you mean by that? Yeah, so I first started taking an interest in this when I heard about what happened in the South Australian citizen jury, which was held, Jay Weatherall held it, I suppose, about a decade ago, and it was on nuclear waste. And it was a very big, serious one. He'd had a couple of minor ones. And this one had 340 people in it. And because there were 340 people deliberating, the the organisers thought, well, we need spokespeople because uh, the media are going to want to know from the jurors what people decided. And so they thought, how do we choose a a subset of these people to be spokespeople. And they didn't want to hold an election because they didn't want competition. And uh, and they didn't want polarisation and, and, and sort of aggro. So what they did was something quite clever, I think. They said, who wants to be a spokesperson? Please stand up. Then when they stood up, they said, point to the third person on your right Uh, You can sit down now and the third person on your right can stand up. They then took those people to a room and they said, we want to spend two hours, the first hour working out the criteria according to which we should choose spokespeople and the second hour working out who you've met in the last three and a half days who you think meet those criteria. And that's how they chose the spokespeople. Again, it's not a competitive way to choose spokespeople. And it was very successful. And one of the things that I like about it is that in the end, it was gender balanced, but that was not one of the criteria. Now, that to me is the best kind of gender balance. So I found this to be a very interesting mechanism. I thought to myself, well, should we be promoting public servants in that way? Any club, any company, any organization could could use this mechanism and It's a mechanism of harnessing the knowledge inside the community, inside the organization to work out who is doing a good job. And often the people at the top don't know that. And often the people who are most desperate to be promoted are the people who are not particularly helpful to underlings and so on and so forth. So it seemed to me that that was a very interesting mechanism. To, to, to identify and choose merit, and one that we haven't thought really much at all about. Instead, we just set up competitions. These citizens' juries in politics today could be used for something like sorting out issues like tax reform, for example, or, uh, yeah, yeah, or nuclear, yeah, but... issue, with nuclear waste, nuclear nuclear industry. Well, they could be. But what I uh, now now what happened? After, I mean, some years after I took an interest in this mechanism, I discovered that this very mechanism was at the heart of the government of Venice for 500 years. I mean, I was just blown away. So what they got, so, so it's an aristocracy, not a democracy, but, but it was a very 
there were 2,000 people in this aristocracy and they had to work out um, who would go in the Senate. I think the Senate had about 120 people. Uh, there's councils, the doge, and they used, and the mechanism they used to choose these people was very like the mechanism in the South Australian citizen juries. This was for 500 years. So what they would do is they would randomly select electors, maybe 10, 20 people from this 2,000 people, just at random, and then they would lock them away. And we see a little bit of this on the TV when, uh, you know, when a pope is chosen because they lock everyone away in a conclave and they say, we're not letting you out until you come up with a decision. So nobody can campaign. Nobody, uh, they're, they're secluded. Nobody can campaign. Nobody can bribe anyone. Uh, and then they get a secret ballot. So even if you do bribe them, uh, it doesn't. So what did that do for Venice? Well, what that did for Venice was that all of the city-states in Renaissance Italy, in medieval and Renaissance Italy, were having blood feud-driven crises and coups and all kinds of things. The Ghibellines and the Guelphs are famous for this famous feud that went through the centuries. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. And Venice, uh, it had plenty of strife, plenty of nasty stuff went on. There wasn't a coup. It had gov It had continuity of government for 500 years from 1297 to 1797. So it was an incredibly stable system. Uh, it used to pride itself. It used to call itself the Serene Republic. That was a bit of PR to some extent, uh, but uh, but it was an extremely successful system. For 500 years? For 500 years. It, uh, it ended with Napoleon marching into Venice. It didn't uh, decline of its own on its own accord. Now, of course, we're not in Renaissance Italy. And, uh, we're, not. We're, not in, we're not in Venice. So why would we need 
citizens' juries in this modern day and age? Uh, well, uh, I just look around, uh, just look around at the madness in politics. Just look around at how many leaders take England, for example, take the United States, uh, uh, take uh, Australia, at least until recently. Uh, we have a system that gives a uh, which which disproportionately selects let's just call them certain kinds of people and that's why we need to try and think about how we get more uh, how we use mechanisms that don't systematically do this uh, and and this is a mechanism that does that uh, it's a mechanism where people can select people who they think are good now the intriguing thing is if you get people to compete for your vote they flatter you and you and it seems that we choose people who flatter us but that's very different to selecting someone from one's community that one really has some confidence in and to some extent um it's a very hybrid sort of system but i think that's to some extent what the teals have done because the teals uh the people who've got in are often people who have somewhat reluctantly made that choice to go into politics. They are independent. All of them are, have independently accomplished a great deal. And they're typically people, you know, they put ads in the paper, these organisations saying, we want to find someone who will be a good member of parliament. Uh, and then they, they vet these people. Uh, so it's much more, so they're bringing this much more closely to to the community. Uh, and I happen to think that we should be looking for ways to institutionalize this. And I'm I'm sure I've told you this before, Leon, but I would like to see democratic constitutions having a people's chamber. You can make it purely advisory, if you like, just randomly selected people who are given the time and resources and paid to show us what the considered opinion of the people is because we don't know that we don't see it all we see it all we see is people's opinion when they get a microphone stuck in their face when they're walking out of the supermarket and rung up by someone as a poll and asked about all kinds of things they don't know anything about well nicholas that's all quite fascinating and gives us lots of room for thought and thank you very much for your time thanks leon so what's happening in the news well, global stocks fell sharply after protests in China against the government's strict COVID-19 policies prompted investor worry over the outlook for the world's second largest economy. Wall Street's benchmark S&P 500 index closed 1.5% lower, while the tech-heavy Nasdaq Composite lost 1.6%. The losses were the largest since November the 9th, the first session after the US midterm elections, and cut into strong gains for equities this month. In Hong Kong, the Hang Seng China Enterprises Index dropped as much as 4.5% before pulling back to shed 1.6%. The decline on China's SI300 Index of Shanghai and Shenzhen listed shares was as big as 2.8% before it was trimmed to just over 1%. Demonstrations broke out in Beijing, Shanghai and other cities over the weekend against government-induced pandemic restrictions. Discontent has intensified since a fire in the city of Urumqi killed 10 people last week, leading to vigils across China as authorities denied allegations that coronavirus restrictions had hampered rescue efforts and prevented residents from escaping the blaze. And Elon Musk's tumultuous reign of Twitter has led to a damaging rift with top brands and marketers, with a social media company's $5 billion a year advertising business hit by tensions over content moderation and resources. 
Top advertising agencies and media buyers say nearly all of the big brands they represent have poor spending on the social media platform, citing alarm at Musk's ad hoc approach to policing content and decision to axe many of its ad sales team. Musk, meanwhile, has sought to personally call chief executives of some brands that have curbed advertising in order to berate them, according to one senior industry figure, leading others to instead reduce their spend to the bare minimum required so as to avoid further confrontation with the billionaire entrepreneur. After several waves of job cuts and departures, Twitter's ads business team has shrunk so much that many agencies no longer have any point of contact with the company and have received little to no communication in recent weeks. Some brands have been unable to get feedback on how previous campaigns have performed because of staffing shortages. Musk is under pressure to draw revenues from Twitter as he faces $1 billion in annual interest payments after loading the company with $13 billion of debt to help fund his acquisition of the business. His relationship with advertising agencies soured after Musk laid off more than half the company's 7,500 workforce, upending Twitter's ad sales team and trust and safety team, and heightening concerns that misinformation and hate speech could proliferate on the platform. Groups such as General Motors, Volkswagen, Carlsberg and General Mills have announced they would be pausing spending on the platform given the moderation concerns, and higher interest rates and cost of living pressures forced consumers to cut back on spending in October. Retail sales fell 0.2% in October, according to data released on Monday by the Australian Bureau of Statistics, defying market expectations of a 0.5% gain. The figure was the first fall in retail spending this year, and the first decline since the onset of the pandemic that did not coincide with the lockdown or harsh COVID-19 restrictions. And the monthly consumer price index, or CPI index, rose 6.9% in the year to October 2022, according to the latest data from the Australian Bureau of Statistics. And the Albanese government has agreed to annually review the adequacy of benefits for the unemployed and other welfare recipients under a deal struck with independent Senator David Pocock to pass workplace relations legislation. The deal will place regular pressure on the Labor government to increase a $668.40 job-seeker fortnightly payment for singles, which community groups and business have argued is too low. Two weeks before each federal budget, a new Economic Inclusion Advisory Committee will publish any recommendations in response to a review of the adequacy of support payments. The committee will be appointed by Treasurer Jim Chalmers and Social Services Minister Amanda Rishworth and include participants from the community sector. Senator Pocock has been campaigning for an increase in the job seeker benefit. He negotiated a deal directly with Prime Minister Anthony Albanese in Canberra on Saturday to set up an annual and transparent review before federal budgets in return for supporting the government's industrial relations legislation. Mr Albanese said Labor will establish a new statutory advisory committee to review approaches to boost economic inclusion and tackle disadvantage. And Queensland suffered more economic damage from extreme weather disasters than any other state or territory, and more extreme weather is on the way. A Climate Council report has examined the financial, social and economic costs of climate change-driven weather events. It found that disasters have cost Queensland about $30 billion since the 1970s, about three times that of Victoria, and public infrastructure damage in southeast Queensland has cost $492 million since the 1970s. The economic cost of Queensland from the floods in February and March alone was $7.7 billion, with an estimated $5.56 billion in insured losses across southeast Queensland and coastal New South Wales. Brisbane suffered about $1.38 billion in insured losses from this year's floods, more than any other local government area in Australia. And the, and the Federal Labor Government will spend $20.5 million to discount loans used to purchase electric vehicles as part of a deal struck between the Clean Energy Finance Corporation and Taurus Motor Finance. Labor has made boosting electric vehicle sales a centrepiece of its plans and scored a legislative victory earlier this month to exempt low and zero emission cars from fringe benefits tax, potentially saving buyers more than $30,000. 
and Crown Resorts, the country's largest casino operator, has posted a new $1 billion loss as it sets aside more than $600 million to pay for fines levied by gaming regulators. In its last year of public ownership, the company has posted revenues of $1.94 billion, up from $1.54 billion in the previous financial year, but expenses have blown out from $1.98 billion in the year to June 30, 2021, to $3.09 billion. That figure includes $617 million set aside for regulatory and other related matters, accounts lodged with these corporate regulators show. The company posted a net loss of $945.4 million compared to a $261.3 million loss in 2021. And at least one state is squaring up for a fight with the federal government as it considers gas price caps and other interventions to curb Australia's spiralling energy bills. As the Commonwealth prepares to intervene with a nationwide curb on power prices, Queensland Premier Anastasia Palaszczuk warned late on Tuesday that her state would not sacrifice energy rebates enjoyed by Queenslanders. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese's cabinet is expected to go ahead with a new strategy to limit power price rises across the country after the federal budget forecasts two years of rising household energy bills. The government is working out the details of how gas prices can be capped and crafting a policy that may include substitutes. The ABC reported on Tuesday that the plan would likely include a cap on wholesale gas prices at about $12 a kilojoule, demands for a guaranteed domestic gas supply from producers, and a mandatory code of conduct as part of a market intervention first flagged five weeks ago. The details are expected to be made public as early as next week, when Mr Albanese will lead a national cabinet meeting and Energy Minister Chris Bowen will meet his state counterparts. However, a $12 cap would be too high for the Australian Council of Social Service and the Australian Workers' Union, which said on Tuesday that a wholesale price lid should be closer to the five-year average spot price of $10 a gigajoule. Prices have been three times that this year in most markets, according to the Australian Energy Regulator. And the financial crime watchdog is suing the Star Entertainment Group over allegations that high-risk VIP patrons churned dirty cash through its Sydney, Bureau, Brisbane and Gold Coast Casino for a number of years. Australian Transaction Reports and Analysis Centre, or ISTRAC, filed this case against Star Sydney and Star Queensland in the Federal Court on Wednesday alleging the casino group facilitated money laundering, which amounted to serious and systemic breaches of federal law. This made the casinos vulnerable to criminal exploitation, with Star's failure to manage risky patrons in turn exposed the Australian global financial system to systemic money laundering and terrorism financing risk over many years. Ostrak said in a statement, The alleged offences could result in hundreds of millions of dollars in fines being slapped on the casino conglomerate, but Ostrak did not include a dollar figure in its statement. Rival Crown Resorts is facing a similar court action and has stashed more than $600 million to pay for fines levied by the states and regulated. And liquidators can see how an ASX-listed fund named after a dead pirate got its name. The fund named after the pirate had collapsed following a string of red flags, including the possibility of investments being significantly overstated. The liquidators probe into the Henry Morgan Fund, named after a 17th century Caribbean buccaneer, have raised questions about $12 million in performance and management fees paid by the fund based on such valuations. The questions being raised centre on a string of pirate-themed investment vehicles associated with former Bond University academic Stuart McAuliffe, who boasted of modelling his investment strategies on the military campaigns of Julius Caesar and George Patton. The Brisbane-based Henry Morgan Fund was one of several entities of which Mr McAuliffe was either a director or headed, and that listed on the ASX or NSX. The Henry Morgan Fund alone, first listed in 2016, raised almost $30 million on the ASX, but some of the pirate-themed entities became embroiled in battles with regulators and exchanges. The Henry Morgan Fund's shares were suspended in 2017. It delisted in 2020 and was forced into court-ordered liquidation in August this year. Liquidators Ian Nicholl 
and Vincent Perino of Aston Chase, in a filing with the Australian Securities Investments Commission, or ASIC, have outlined a series of reasons they believe the fund failed. They included that the funds raised were not used for the purpose set out in the prospectus, but for the purpose of investing in and paying fees to the companies and businesses connected with Mr McAuliffe. It said the value of investments in Mr McAuliffe related to companies and businesses may have been significantly overstated in the fund's accounts, increasing its net tangible assets. That had an effect on management and performance fees payable to an investment management company called John Bridgman, named after another 17th century pirate, also where Mr McAuliffe was managing director. And Reserve Bank Governor Philip Lowe has given an unprecedented apology to Australians for giving them unclear guidance that led to hundreds of thousands taking out big mortgages in the expectation that interest rates would stay low until 2024. Well, his answer was couched as an apology. I'm sorry if people listened to what we said and acted on what we said and now regret what they've done. I'm sorry that happened, he said. I'm sorry that people listened to what we said and acted on that and now find themselves in a position they don't want to be in. At the time, we thought it was the right thing to do. In other words, the RBA Governor, whose decisions along with the rest of the bank board, are costing mortgage holders about $1,000 a month in higher repayments, told people he was sorry they'd listened to him. He said the bank failed to communicate with the public properly. He told a Senate hearing that they did the right thing at the time, but with the benefit of hindsight, the central bank may have injected too much stimulus into the economy during the pandemic. Towards the end of 2020, and for nearly all of last year, Dr Lowe said interest rates would not likely rise until 2024. The cash rate has now hit 2.85%, leaving many people on variable interest rates paying as high as 6 to 7% on their mortgages and struggling to make repayments amid the higher cost of living. Dr Lowe was answering questions at the Senate Economics Committee hearing in Canberra on Monday and said interest rates would continue to rise until inflation falls. And the financial services watchdog is urging Medibank Private to dock executive pay over serious security lapses after the massive breach of personal health data that exposed the health insurer's entire customer database. The Australian Prudential Regulation Authority, or APRA, also said on Monday it would increase its scrutiny of Medibank and might take further action against a company pending an external review of the health insurer. Last month, criminal hackers stole 9.7 million current and former customer records, including sensitive information of 480,000 policyholders' medical conditions and treatment. Deloitte has been commissioned to conduct an external review of the breach, Medibank's risk management systems and the company's response. While APRA notes Medibank's constructive response to date, APRA will consider whether further regulatory action is needed when the findings of the report become clear, APRA member Suzanne Smith said. And a Victorian restaurateur is facing up to 10 years in jail and more than $1 million in corporate fines after being criminally charged for allegedly failing to pay staff properly in the first case of wage theft, being treated as a crime in Australia. The Wage Inspectorate Victoria last Friday filed 94 criminal charges in the magistrate's courts against regional restaurant Macedon Lounge, Gora Sudia, for allegedly failing to pay more than $7,000 owed to four staff members over five months. The Victorian government introduced new laws in 2020 which came into effect in June 2021 that make wage theft a criminal offence, punishable by 10 years imprisonment for business owners and $1.1 million for the company if underpayments are found to be deliberate. The White Shock alleges Macedon Lounge and its officer and employee exercising control over the business breached these laws by dishonestly underpaying staff entitlements which include wages, superannuation and penalty rates between July and November last year. Setia is the company's sole officer according to corporate filings. These are the first criminal charges laid under the new Victorian laws and the first time wage theft has been criminally prosecuted in the country. Wage theft is also a crime in Queensland but no restaurant or business owner has ever been prosecuted. And digital lender Plenty believes a peer-to-peer lending model will be a viable future in the world of higher interest rates and volatile share market returns as fintechs grapple with sharply rising funding costs. Peer-to-peer lending, where investors lend their money 
to borrowers via an online platform bypassing banks was once touted as an approach that could challenge traditional banking. The logic was that P2P lenders could be more efficient because the platforms could take a smaller cut than banks and their model avoided the cost of branches and intensive regulation. In Australia, the P2P model struggled to gain traction and was largely overtaken by more traditional wholesale funding models, while some big P2P players overseas moved away from taking retail money entirely. However, ASIC listed Plenty, which was formerly known as Ratesetter and was an early P2P player in Australia, is looking to reinvigorate its platform that allows retail investors to fund loans. Chief Executive Daniel Foggo said the company, which provides personal loans, car loans and renewable energy loans, had seen wholesale borrowing costs rise from 3% to 67% as interest rates had risen. He said it makes a lot of sense to get more funding from its P2P platform, and he believes investors would be attracted to the more stable returns at a time of stock market volatility. And that's it for this week. And next week I'll be talking to marketing whiz Maureen Barton about how companies can really make a difference with their marketing. And I'll be talking to economist Alex Joyner from IFM Investors about the outlook for the economy next year. In the meantime, you can catch me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn and YouTube. And if you want, leave a comment. For the most exclusive access to leading economists and business leaders from around the world, subscribe to Talking Business on the Apple Podcast Store or on my website, leonardgetler.com. Wishing you all a safe and healthy week and looking forward to bringing Talking Business next week. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 